right, everyone. I know that others will be joining us shortly. The service apparently is going a little long today, but I want to maximize our time with the speaker. Good morning. Thank you so much for being here for the start of the 2023-2024 St. John's Sunday Morning Speaker Series. Thank you very much for being here. In the summer of 2022, so not this past summer, but the summer beforehand, my wife Carolyn, who's here, and I were walking our little dog in the woods through our, uh, near our house one Saturday. And during the course of that walk, we encountered a stranger. By the end of that walk, that stranger had become a friend. During the course of the walk, we learned that that stranger was not just a, a really nice guy, but also a really interesting one, and one who was, is, a figure of considerable historical importance. And that friend, of course, is today's speaker, Len Downey, who has had a storied 44-year career at the Washington Post and ultimately became its executive editor. Len, who's with his lovely wife Janice, whom we've also come to know, is now a professor of journalism at Arizona State. And he's also the author of a number of important books, uh, one of which called All About the Story, which I have here today and which I read over the course of the summer and which he very kindly autographed for me last summer, um, is the subject of his talk, and it chronicles his long and storied journalism career. I can't give him a better introduction than that found in the front of the book, so I'm just going to read briefly from it, and then I'll turn it over to Lynn. In 1964, as a 22-year-old Ohio State graduate with working-class Cleveland roots and a family to support, Leonard Downey Jr. landed an internship with the Washington Post. He would become a pioneering investigative reporter, news editor, foreign correspondent, and managing editor before succeeding the legendary Ben Bradley as executive editor. He was one of the editors on the historic Watergate story, drove coverage of the impeachment of Bill Clinton. He wrestled with the Unabomber's threat to kill more people unless the Post published a rambling 30,000-word manifesto. And he also published important national security stories in defiance of presidents and other top officials. He led the post ascendancy to the pinnacle of influence, circulation, and profitability, producing prize-winning investigative reporting with a deep impact on American life before the digital transformation of news media threatened the post future and ultimately led to its sale. With that, please join me welcoming Len Downey. Uh, what Clark left out about the uh, meeting last summer was that um, I was uh, dehydrated on a very hot and humid day, and I was falling on a very steep path that we were all on. Uh, Carolyn and Clark managed the path fine. I was falling down. They not only lifted me up, but Clark insisted on holding me up for the whole rest of our walk until he was able to sit me down in a nearby neighborhood and go and get his car and drive me home, where I was scolded by my wife for having gone out without water, without drinking water beforehand, or taking water with me. Uh, that's, by the way, if you want to uh, know more about that, uh, in the, the middle of October, uh, the health uh, section of the Washington Post will have a, 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 a special issue on aging well. And uh, I, have, uh, I, I, I did a, uh, uh, a journal, I wrote a journal about turning 80 during my 80th year. And excerpts from that, including that uh, ill-fated walk, will be in that piece uh, sometime in the middle of October, uh, Sunday, uh, Monday in the middle of October. Uh, I, did, I did indeed start at the Washington Post as a summer intern in 1964. 
I was an accidental intern. I, it was only the second year of the summer internships at the Post. It was a previous one in 1963. Uh, and a young man named Robert Kaiser who went to Yale, as he always told everyone for the rest of his life. He's still my good friend and still re reminds me, oh, this, he was my classmate at, at, at Yale. She was my classmate at Yale. And he, he's talking about famous people. Uh, so uh, uh, he was, that was his second summer. He had already been a intern in the first summer in 1963. And uh, he, I, I came from Ohio State University. That's where I went to college on a scholarship. I, my, I was first in my family to go to college. Without that scholarship, I could not have gone at all. Uh, and this was fascinating to the young city editor at the Post at the time named Steve Isaacs. And he says, here's his Yaley, second summer intern. Here's this guy Downey that we didn't even have in the intern program to begin with. I was you know, accidentally got there. I'm not going to go into that long story. It's in the book. Um, and. Um, Let's have a competition. Let's see how the Yaley does against the land grant guy. Uh, and uh, so by the end of the summer, each of us had 13 stories in the Washington Post as summer interns. And we were both hired at the end of the summer. And we remained friends ever since. And when I became executive editor of the Washington Post in 1991, Bob, I made Bob Kaiser uh, my managing editor. Uh, so that's how it began. And, and I, the second accident was at the old Court of General Sessions. None of you probably know what that is. It, was, it used to be the, the court for everything, all the local criminal and civil actions in Washington, D.C., run by the federal government, was a mess. Uh, the, uh, the federal government was not paying good attention to it. They were putting political appointees into judgeships who were not ready to be judges. It just People were drinking alcohol in the halls. Deals were being made to settle criminal cases in the halls like they should not have been, uh, et cetera. Uh, and uh, Ben Bradley, the, the new managing editor of the Post at that time, and Steve Isaacs, the city editor that was, uh, I was now working for, uh, had both covered that court at different times and knew how bad it was. And they decided, this, I, I had done some really good work as a summer intern at the police headquarters overnight at, on the night shift, uh, including some investigative reporting then. And so they decided to send me down to the Court of General Sessions. They kept the court reporter there to cover the trials and the usual stuff and just have me look around and see what I found about this terrible court. So here I was in a cheap suit, uh, 23 years old, um, wandering around the court. Some of it was easy, as I always tell my students now, the first thing to do with investigative reporting is simply to be an observer. And I could observe all this bad stuff going on in the halls, and I would run to a stairwell, pull out my notebook, write down what I'd seen, put it back in my pocket, uh, and, uh, and, and eventually found two judges the late Harold H. Green, who later married Janice and me many, many years later, and, and Charles Halleck, the son of a congressman, uh, and one uh, prosecutor, the chief prosecutor there, were the three people that I felt were actually competent in the court. And so I would use them as my, as my experts, as my Sherpas. They, so I, when I observed things that I thought weren't going right, I would check out with them what's going on here. I sat in courtrooms where I saw judges doing very bizarre things, including one judge named Scally who got drunk every day at lunch and would stay in his, uh, in his uh, office behind the courtroom with the door open, you know, drunk, and his, and his uh, clerk would run the court. I mean, literally send people to prison for drunk driving and things like that by just saying, Scally, how does this sound? 30 days sound right to you? Yes, okay, we'll do that. So it was, really, it was pretty easy, actually, to discover what was wrong there. So anyway, the upshot of this was, oh, and I also, this is no, no computer records back then. So I had to spend uh, weeks and weeks in the uh, court's office going through every single felony case 
uh, the case jacket, uh, in order to, to uh, come up with statistics for what happened to these cases, how, which ones were tried, which ones were settled with the plea bargains, which ones were thrown out, which judges were giving short sentences, which judges were giving long sentences, all those kinds of things. So I wound up doing a seven-part series for the Washington Post, published on the front page in 1965, and was invited not long after the series ran to have lunch upstairs in the Post building uh, with my editor and with Ramsey Clark, who was the Deputy Attorney General of the United States. And Ramsey Clark said, we've read your series. We had a guy looking at this court. We're interested in court reform. We asked him if what you wrote was true. He said, absolutely. He says, I'm amazed by what he found. He said, we're going to abolish the Court of General Sessions. And they did. And Congress created the D.C. Superior Court that's here today, and they made Harold Crean the first chief judge. So that, that was the beginning of my time as an investigative reporter. I then investigated mortgage fraud in the district where black homeowners were being, uh, were being cheated out of their houses by, uh, by home improvement people who got them to sign second mortgages on their houses uh, that they couldn't pay off, uh, and uh, a variety of other investigative things. Then came a new editor, uh, a new uh, editor in charge of the uh, local section of the Washington Post, local news section, uh, named Harry Rosenfeld. He became the new uh, metropolitan editor uh, for, for the paper. And he thought I was taking too long on all these things. So it was, each project was about a year long. And he thought that was a waste of my time. I should be doing daily journalism. Uh, and so he put me on the city desk, which I hated. I wanted to remain an investigative reporter. I did not want to go on the city desk. But as a result, it changed my life. Because I was not a good writer as an investigative reporter, which I'm afraid is true of many investigative reporters. That's not their first, uh, not their first talent. Uh, and so um, uh, I, I learned by editing other people uh, a lot about writing. All these different writing styles, and talking with them about how they approached what they approached. And it turned out I was a natural as an editor in terms of assignments and how to handle stories and so on and so forth. Uh, so then I got a, a fellowship, a traveling fellowship. Um, uh, they took me around. It proves one of my books on, on, uh, on real estate speculation. Traveled around the country and around the, and in, in Europe and in, uh, and in Israel. Uh, and uh, wound up in London was the last stop on, on, uh, on, my, on my fellowship. I was there for a couple months. And just before I was about to come back to Washington, two things happened. One, I, I, got a, I sent a letter to the managing, then managing editor of the paper, Howard Simon, saying, for my next assignment when I come back, I want to be on a national staff. I want to be a national reporter. I want to cover urban affairs. I've been studying urban affairs in this fellowship. I really want to do this. The letter came back from him saying, no, you're going to be Harry Rosenfeld's deputy, which was not exactly the first thing I wanted to do <laughs> when I came back. Uh, and the second thing was, I picked up the Herald Tribune literally days before I left London, and there was the first story by Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein about Watergate. And uh, Carl, I wonder why Carl was still there. Even though he was a very talented journalist, and I knew Carl, of course, before I took my fellowship, he was always getting into trouble. He was found asleep in, his, on, in offices where he was supposed to be working on, 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 his, on his beats. Uh, he was... Uh, uh, he, he left a, a car, a rental car rented by the Washington Post, because Carl never paid for anything. A car rented from the Washington Post in a, in a garage downtown for months on end, uh, running up running up big charges, uh, et cetera. I just figured he'd be, he wouldn't be there anymore. And who was Bob Woodward? He must have been hired while I was gone. I had no idea who he was. And why in the world would anybody break into the Democratic National Headquarters uh, in, uh, in the Watergate? 
And I came back, and a, and a week later, I was one of the editors of the chain of command reviewing Watergate stories under Harry Rosenfeld and over the city editor who actually uh, managed Bob and Carl. His name was Barry Sussman. Uh, and then as that, that went on until uh, early 1973 uh, when Barry decided to go off to write a book because he was not, he, Bob and Carl did not invite him to join them in writing All the President's Men. And he was not happy about that, so he went off to write his own book, a very good book about Watergate. Uh, and I took over editing Bob and Carl and eventually all the rest of the Watergate stuff, including the Senate hearings and, uh, and the prosecutions and so on, until the President resigned uh, in August of 1974. For people who thought we were out to get the president, we never, for months and months and months, we never thought it would actually reach him, much less that he would have to resign. Uh, and on that particular night, now the national desk, the national desk always wanted to take over the story from the local staff, but Ben kept saying, this is a local story. The boys are doing a good job. He always called us the boys, because we're all in our 30s. Uh, and uh, I'm not going to do it. And one day, the national editor came over to me on, on the Metro staff, a, a very, a very important journalist, no longer with us, uh, came over to me and said, will you please tell Ben that you should give the story to the national staff? And I said to this very important journalist, get out of my staff. Just go back over to the national staff. Stay away from Metro. Don't, don't bother me anymore. Uh, and so, so Ben stayed with us right until, right until the very end. But on the day, uh, the night actually, that, uh, that Nixon re resigned, uh, Bob and Carl and I couldn't work. I mean, national staff was covering it all anyway because now it was, a, it was a presidential transition. It was no longer an investigative story. Uh, and uh, we, we were just stunned. We were stunned that this is actually what was the result of all, those, all those, months of all those months of work. We just sat there and watched what was going on. I, I then became uh, the you know, Metro editor in charge of local coverage for five years. Uh, and then another accident occurred. Uh, the, uh, uh, the uh, London correspondent for the Washington Post. I better get out my phone so I don't, so I leave you all time to answer questions. Um, so then, uh, the, uh, the London correspondent at that time was refusing to leave uh, London. I'm an assistant managing editor now in charge of Metro News, and so Ben Bradley calls me in one day and he says, uh, Bernard Bernie Nasser will not leave London. He's now he's supposed to have only been there four or five years. He's now been there eight and a half years. Howard Simons went over to toll, tell him to leave, and he didn't leave. Uh, and so Ben said, look, you're an assistant managing editor. I'm going to make you the London correspondent if you want to go. And you just go, and, you're, and you tell him you're here, and he's got to leave. Uh, and that's what we did. Uh, and so I became London correspondent for three and a half years at what turned out to be a really interesting time uh, to be over there. I, I, uh, my, one of my first stories was the, uh, was the fall of the Callahan government that led to the election that produced Margaret Thatcher. Uh, I wrote a front page story for the Post when she made her Iron Lady speech, and, uh, and that's, I think she was known in the United States as the Iron Lady ever since because of that story. Uh, and uh, it covered obviously her first years in government when she completely changed uh, the, uh, a lot of the aspects of government in, uh, in Britain and was a really interesting person to cover. Um, uh, also, of course, I covered the royal wedding, which was one of the most fun things I ever did in my top hat and tails. Uh, inside the cathedral, um, and before that, uh, just by happenstance, I, I, uh, uh, one of the things I always did as a, as a, as a, when I was a reporter was, and I advise other reporters to do this, is I would find the, uh, the, the key person, the key aide to anybody that I was going to be wind up covering so I could get access to them. So there was this young man from somewhere out in the Commonwealth who was the press secretary to, uh, uh, to Prince Charles. 
then, then Prince Charles. And I uh, got to know him well, and through him, scheduled, a, and I became president of the American Correspondent Association in London, which then was quite large because there were a lot of American correspondents then. Not, not so many now. Um, and uh, 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 arranged to have him have come to dinner uh, at the American Correspondents Association with, with me. Uh, and, but it had to be scheduled a year out. And so by the time it was a year out, it was not long before the royal wedding. When we first scheduled it, there was no uh, Lady Diana in the picture or anything like that. Uh, and uh, so it turned out to be a great time to spend time with him. We had a reception where he actually told us that uh, he really liked being with Americans because he could let us he could let his guard down, uh, as opposed to what he's doing all of his uh, uh, formal uh, work with uh, with the British people. Uh, I found him though to be a um, we, we found him to be a very nervous person. He always walked around like this with his hand here or his hand back here or his hands like this. Never never in a completely relaxed position. Uh, he when we we, it was a, we had to be a, a, a deep what they call a deep what we call a deep background lunch, which is we could use information we received there, but we could not quote the prince. It was not like an interview. This dinner was. Um, and so as we asked him questions, we asked him, for instance, why, why do you only play, uh, uh, why, 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 why do you only play polo? Uh, you know, that looks so, how does that look to the British people that join play polo? He said, look, the way I grew up, I never even saw a soccer game, much less played soccer. I didn't have an opportunity to do anything but play polo. Uh, why, uh, what, what is it going to be like, uh, how, when will you become the king? Well, uh, the Earl Mountbatten was essentially his, his substitute father. His own father didn't pay much attention to him. Uh, and the Earl Mountbatten told him when he was a teenager, he said, you must understand you will never be king until your mother dies. Uh, and uh, because we are not like the, the bicycle kings and queens of Scandinavia who retire whenever they feel like retiring. Your mother, your mother will be queen until she dies. So you're going to have to wait. So we asked him, so, so what, do you, what do you do then by the way? So he talked about his interest in architecture, his interest in, uh, in, uh, in, uh, in organic food and so on. But it was clear that this was a man looking for a role uh, that, he, that, he, that he did not have. And then of course came, the, we asked him about the royal wedding. And the interesting thing was he never hardly said anything about Diana or about their relationship. Instead it was all about the plans for the wedding and how it was going to be the biggest, he said, we, we British are really good at spectacles. This is going to be the biggest spectacle. It's got the best music, the best everything. Indeed, as, as his coronation was recently, if you, if you noticed. Uh, and so the, it was clear that this wedding was not about love, necessarily, uh, but was about something else. Uh, and so it was not surprising later when there were problems. Um, I want one thing to say about Diana. Uh, when uh, when we were interviewing people about Diana, uh, the uh, Tina Brown, who you probably all know who she is, magazine editor, journalist, etc., um, told us she's thick as two boards. She has no education. She's thick as two boards, uh, which is a British way of saying she's stupid. Uh, and uh, I, I, I thought about that. And years later, uh, when I was back in Washington uh, as an editor, um, there was a reception at the British Embassy uh, for. Uh, Charles and Diane, who are here promoting something with uh, J.C. Penney, uh, interestingly, considering it doesn't exist anymore, uh, some kind of clothing line with J.C. Penney. And it was a relatively small reception, and as it always happens in receptions, there's a Charles group and there's a Diana group. You know, sort of, you know, we have to line up 
and then they, they walk along and, and talk to you. And I was in the Diana group, and I was one of the first ones, and she stopped and talked to her. And she asked me the best intelligent question. She said, why do you Americans cover the royal family as a legitimate news story, and why do the British only cover us uh, as, uh, uh, in, in, uh, in gossip, as gossip? Uh, and uh, and we, just, we had a good conversation. And uh, this was not a woman who was thick as two boards. This was an intelligent woman trying to figure out how to deal with what was going on with her long before things became so serious uh, that it, it led, to, uh, led to what happened later. Uh, I became managing editor in 1984. Uh, ben chose me. That was another not quite accident. I was one of three uh, possibilities for the job. One was a terrific foreign editor at the Post. Uh, the other was a, the editor of Style, uh, and uh, who's a good friend of Ben's and uh, and Sally's, uh, and uh, and me. Uh, and so Ben called me into his office one day. I mean, Howard Simons, the then managing editor, was going to go off to uh, went off to Harvard uh, to uh, to become the head of the Neiman Foundation. Uh, he and Ben had not gotten along since Watergate because Howard felt really that he was uh, sort of written out of the whole Watergate story by Ben and the movie and the book and everything. And so he was looking for something else to do and he went off to the Neiman Fellowships. Uh, so Ben called me in and he said, you know, I've got to make a decision here. I've got to find a new managing editor. And I, I you know, I, 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 Jim Hoagland, uh, he was the foreign, the foreign editor. Uh, he's, he's a good candidate. Shelby Coffee, that's the style that he's a good candidate. And you're a good candidate. So you know what I'd like to do? How about if I have the three of you work together as managing editors, and then eventually I will pick the one who does the best job. And I said, Ben, I, I, if this costs me the job, so what? None of us would want to do that. None of us could do that. And I left and waited. And what I didn't know was that Don Graham was going around the newsroom, Don Graham, the then publisher and CEO, was going around the newsroom asking people about us, and particularly about me. And he told Ben he wanted me to succeed, to be the next managing editor, uh, in, in part because uh, he saw me as a potential successor to Ben when Ben retired. And so uh, that's what happened. Ben took me out to lunch and offered me the job, and I took it. And he also, because he was already, oh, I can't remember how old he was then, but maybe 63, 64, something like that, 65. Uh, he, he asked me to run the paper on a daily basis, uh, and uh, uh, because he just uh, he, he didn't say why, but he asked me to run on a daily basis. So I held the story conferences that decided what stories were going to go on the front page, and and he and I hired people together, and then, and I pretty much ran the rest of the newsroom. So by the time he did retire in 1991, I was ready to take over, and it was pretty seamless as a result. And I I still uh, thank him very very much in absentia for that generosity that made that possible. Decisions that I had to make as, as editor. Um, well, I can't read my handwriting. Oh, yes, I remember. Okay. Uh, so, uh, you know, people thought uh, that, uh, pro probably thought that uh, because of Watergate, uh, that I might have a predisposition to be more critical of Republicans and Democrats. But in fact, when, uh, by the time Bill Clinton was elected president, we had already investigated the savings and loan uh, that he and his wife were involved with in, in, uh, in, uh, in Arkansas. Uh, and, uh, and when he came into office, that investigation was revived by a federal agency, which one of our investigative reporters discovered. We wrote a lot about that. And so one day, um, 
I got an invitation to go to the White House to talk to Hillary Clinton. This is relatively early on, still in that administration. Uh, and uh, uh, we, were, we were together in a, in a little room, the Indian uh, Treaty Room, uh, just sitting uh, around the table with the only other person there was her press person, uh, who never said a word. Uh, and for, for, the, for a little while, we were both silent because we thought, each of us thought that, that the other had called for this meeting because, um, now I'm forgetting his name. Can you remember his name, Janice? Uh, is it Gergen? Hmm? Yes, yeah, 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 David Gergen. David Gergen had been hired by the Clintons, even though he worked for Republican administrations, to, to improve their relationships with the press because so much of the press was critical of them. And so he asked me to come to the meeting, he asked her to come to the meeting, and each one, each of us thought the other was inviting us, inviting us. So that was our one laugh when we both discovered what Gergen had done to us. After that, it was all Hillary. Why do you why do you cover us the way you do? Why are you being so antagonistic? Uh, and, and then, after going through, and I think I explained about the savings and loan. I said, you know, all those big savings and loan collapse around the country, it cost taxpayers lots of money. We have to look into savings and loans in which there were fraud questions, and that was a case with the one in Arkansas. Uh, you know, we cover we cover the president as aggressively as we cover anybody. We don't favor Republicans or Democrats. Uh, you can see from you know, what we did in the past that that's true. Uh, and then she, I, I was trying to think, how am I going to bring up the women thing? By this time, the, the, uh, the, uh, there had been stories about the troopers in Arkansas talking about Bill Clinton and his women and, uh, and other things. And I was wondering, how am I going to bring this up? And she brought it up. Oh, yes, those state troopers, I told Bill he should fire all of them. They're all drunks. They're terrible. They make up these stories. Jennifer Flowers? I mean, Jennifer Flowers was somebody, I mean, I told Bill, you know, he, 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 she had contacted him about some problems that she had. I told Bill, don't talk to her. Uh, just all of that, just every bit of it. And so I listened and, and I explained again, we, we have to cover the president aggressively. That's our job. Uh, and uh, if you have any problems, or he has any problems with our coverage, if it's specific problems, please bring them to me. We'll talk them out. We'll see if, we'll see if we're doing the right thing, et cetera. The then White House reporter for the Washington Post, whose name I'm also forgetting. And Deborah. And Deborah. This is one of the main reasons why Janice is here. And Deborah, the late Ann Deborah, was a fantastic White House correspondent in both Republican and Democratic administrations. When, some, when something would hit the fan at 10 or 11 o'clock at night, and I would rush into the office to see how we were going to cover it, and Ann was not quite there yet because I lived closer to the office than she did. But on her desk were uh, telephone slips already from everybody in the administration calling her to talk about this, what happened, right up to the very top. Uh, that's, how, that's how good a reporter she was. So she calls me minutes after I've gotten back to the post. She said, what in the world did you say to Hillary? <laughs> Hillary saying you called her a liar, uh, that you were very aggressive, that you were nasty to her. She said, I said, that was exactly the opposite. I, I, I did not call her a liar. I said, I thought that she was lying, but I didn't say it. Uh, and, uh, and so on. And that was the beginning of a really bad relationship with, uh, that I had with Hillary Clinton, who later on said to people in the White House that I was trying to be, I was jealous of Ben Bradley. He got rid of Richard Nixon. I was trying to get rid of Bill Clinton. And she wanted to investigate. Uh, she wanted the press office to investigate our coverage, which the press office refused to do, etc. So it was not a good relationship, to say the least. On the other hand, the president, who, I, I, uh, who uh, was, we had a dinner at the White House. It was a dinner for uh, 40 people, 
they, they did different dinners with 40 people at the beginning of the administration, including journalists. My wife and then wife and I were there. Uh, and uh, 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 I was at Hillary's table. I was sitting opposite her, just like I am with Clark right now. And she would not look at me the whole dinner. She'd only talk to the people next to her and paid no attention to me whatsoever. But Bill Clinton, after the dinner was over, we were all invited to take tours of the White House with Bill. And uh, uh, he, was, he couldn't have been nicer. And he, he made sure that he had conversations with each one of us. His conversations with me was what books were we reading, what books was he reading. Uh, like, like none of this other stuff was going on. So then my son Joshua is graduating from Georgetown Day School. Uh, and uh, and uh, 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 Chelsea Clinton is graduating from Sidwell Friends, the rival to Georgetown Day School. Uh, and uh, their, their commencements are exactly the same days at the same hour. Uh, and so, uh, and I was chosen by Josh's class to speak to his class, and she and Bill was chosen to speak at Chelsea's class. And so I call up, so I, I so I'm, and, and everybody at Georgetown Day was liberal except for my son, who prided himself in being the only conservative at Georgetown Day School, uh, and, and was obnoxious about it. <laughs> and. Uh, uh, so uh, I, I, many of them had worked uh, in campaigns for Clinton. Some worked in the administration. They, 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 were, they were all liberal Democrats. And so I figured they would hate the fact that I'm their commencement speaker as opposed to Bill Clinton being their commencement speaker. So what I wanted to do was begin my speech by saying, I know that you wish that Bill Clinton were here today instead of me. And I'm going to tell you the exact same joke that right now he is telling his audience at Sidwell Friends. So I called up the press secretary, uh, Curry, uh, a, great, a great guy, a terrific press secretary, and I told him my problem. He said, oh, I think that Bill would be interested in that. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll talk to him about it. Time goes by. I've written my speech. I still don't have the joke. So I call again, and Curry says, well, we got a problem. He said that the, uh, there have been drafts of the speech by the speech writers, but the president's thrown them all away. He's writing his own speech, and I don't know what's in it. And I said, well, okay, I guess that's, that's life. Uh, and so um, a few hours go by, and my assistant, my wonderful assistant, Pat O'Shea, comes running through the newsroom, yelling out, the president's on the phone for you. It's himself. It's not even anybody else calling for him. And so I go, and he's, Lynn? Lynn, isn't this amazing? We're both doing this at the same time. He said, it's just so wonderful. Isn't it great being a father? Um, and Chelsea told me, she said, she said, I hope you won't embarrass me with your speech. I, and I told the truth. I said, Josh told me exactly the same thing. <laughs> and so we chuckled over that. And, we're, and he's going on and on about being, being a father and so on. And, uh, and I said, well, Mr. President, um, you remember I, I needed the joke in your speech. So he gave it to me. And so I put it in my speech, and that's how I began my speech. So I told him, Mr. President, so he said, please send me your speech, Lynn. I want to see what it's like. I want to see what it's like. I said, send me yours, too. And so when I sent him mine, I wrote it in, in longhand. I wrote a note to him saying, I know that you and Mrs. Clinton are upset with a lot of our coverage. I want you to understand we have to cover presidents aggressively, but it's not personal. We want to be accurate. If you have any problems, please call me so I can address them. And he said, uh, don't worry. It's all fine. You, you do a great job. Which, of course, was not true. It was not actually what he thought. <laughs> uh, just a couple, a couple more decisions, and I need to let you have time to ask me questions. Um, uh, Clark mentioned uh, the uh, Unabomber. Uh, so uh, 
when, for many years, the Unabomber had been sending around bombs to people, blowing people up. You all are familiar with that. Uh, and uh, one day, uh, the New York Times uh, alerted the Justice Department to the fact that they had gotten a manifesto from the Unabomber in the mail with a demand that they publish it. And the very next day, we got our copy. The mailroom got our copy. Uh, and uh, um, called, we, we called the FBI. They came and took it, and they made a copy, a copy of it for us, an exact copy of it for us, which, which I used to have until I gave it to the Library of Congress with my other, my other papers a little while ago. And you can see it in the Library of Congress if you want. Or you can see it online, or maybe too. I'm not sure how that works. Uh, and so uh, uh, we had to decide whether or not we are, he, 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 the Unabomber stipulated, you publish this, I'll stop sending out bombs. You don't publish this, I'm going to kill at least one more person. Uh, and he set a deadline. And so Don and I, and always other decisions that I had to make, every other news decision I made, Don made sure that I made that decision. Uh, I'll, I'll get into one more example of that shortly, and then I'll stop. Um, uh, so, uh, but in this case, this couldn't be my decision. This had to be a joint decision between the publisher and me because giving in to a terrorist to publish something that a terrorist wanted us to publish is, is more than just an editorial decision, not a news decision. And we decided right at the beginning that we would not publish this in the news pages of the Post. We'd have to figure out something else. And we consulted immediately with the New York Times because the same demand was made to them. Uh, so we contacted the FBI, and what, what, what ensued were three different meetings at FBI headquarters, each one escalating up in terms of, of uh, the importance of the people conducting it. But at all of them were the people who were on the Unabomber investigation. And it was clear that they were, they had no idea. They were able to reproduce those little beautiful little boxes the bombs were in perfectly. That was amazing. But their idea of who the Eurobomber might be was of some left-wing liberal, maybe uh, in San Francisco area, uh, which turned out, of course, not to be the case. Uh, and so and then the question was, should we publish this thing? Uh, and so in the third meeting, which with the Attorney General Janet Reno was there, along with the FBI director who was at all the other meetings, uh, she made suge suggestions about what we might do. Uh, and one of them was to uh, have it published uh, in the New York Times because the New York Times had circulation in the, in the Bay Area in case the Unabomber would go and try and buy it there and he'd get arrested. Uh, her other suggestion, and we decided the New York Times did not want to do that. In fact, it was clear to me the New York Times didn't want to publish it at all. Uh, whereas Don was still very, Don and I were open-minded about what to do. Uh, and so then um, uh, she suggested that uh, we produce it as a kind of pamphlet, as a kind of little book, and, and send it to bookstores around the country. And Don said two things. He said, first of all, we don't know that we'll get it to all the right bookstores if we did it. And second of all, I don't want to treat this guy like an author. He said, like, like Len here, he said he probably won't like the way we're, we're publishing it. He wants us to do it differently. We don't want to get involved in that. Uh, so uh, we then adjourned. Uh, to, uh, to um, uh, after that meeting to uh, a, a nearby coffee shop with the, uh, the publisher, editor of the New York Times. And uh, Don and me and our, and our, uh, uh, our, our then publisher, Bo Jones. Um, and Don had an idea that I liked, which is don't publish it in the regular part of the newspaper, but back then, if you recall, the Washington Post had lots of inserts 
many days of the week from advertisers. So we'll make this an insert. Uh, so it's not, it's not like it's part of the newspaper, it's just an insert in it. We did it in different type from the newspaper. It didn't look anything at all like the newspaper looks, and we published it. And journalism professors, I'm here to say, criticize us terribly for, for giving in to the terrorists. Uh, and uh, uh, and, uh, and but we, we, we just lived with that and waited and waited. And then David Kaczynski, who happened to be the Unabomber's brother, uh, he and his wife found it, found it uh, on, uh, on, online, actually, in a library. It's the early days of online publication of things in the Washington Post. And uh, she insisted to him, this sounds like your brother, Ted. Uh, and eventually they, they turned him in. Uh, uh, and uh, he was arrested and, and imprisoned and then, then died. Last thing. Uh, the last big decision I made probably uh, was when after 9-11, uh, 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 it was a, a secret order from the president, from President George W. Bush, for the CIA to uh, fight terrorism around the world. In addition to anything else that was going on, the CIA had to have a, okay, do whatever it could to fight terrorism around the world. And one of the things they did was begin to arrest terrorist suspects or have people arrest terrorist suspects in different parts of the world uh, and bring them to, some to Guantanamo Bay, which was set up then, but others to secret CIA prisons uh, in Eastern European countries that had been part of the Soviet Union but were now free and democracies without necessarily telling the leaders of those countries but only the uh, the secret services of those countries, the, the uh, spy agencies of those countries, that they were doing this. Uh, and uh, one of our great reporters, uh, uh, Dana Priest, multiple Pulitzer Prize winner, was covered, I had signed her to the intelligence beat right after 9-11. And she found out about this. It was, not a, it was not given to her by anybody. It was not a leak. She was interviewing all of her sources in, uh, in, uh, in, the, in the intelligence community and realized that something was bothering them. Something, something was really concerning them. And so she would find out one little thing from him take it over to her, find out something else from her, take that to him and find out something else over months, uh, and began to piece together the CIA secret prisons uh, in Europe, where not only were they, they were being held there, but they were being tortured there, as we found out later. Uh, and uh, so, as, as always, once she, once she was ready to have a, she drafted the story, and once she was ready with that, we had her contact the, uh, uh, the CIA, uh, to tell them what she had, and also to tell them that she also found out in all this reporting about all the financial arrangements that were being made to try to stop terrorism, which we were not going to publish. I decided that right away, we were not going to publish that, that did not raise the moral and legal issues of the CIA secret prisons. Uh, so, uh, uh, and, and, uh, and, and uh, the next thing that happened is that we were invited over uh, to the CIA. Actually, Don was invited over and he said, no, no, I, I don't go. You, 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 Len, Len takes care of this. Uh, and uh, so we went over to the CIA and the CIA director, oh, by the way, at the CIA meeting, there was a couple other people and there was this one guy who was never identified to us, handsome, rugged guy. And after, after the meeting was over on the way back, I asked, uh, and he never spoke, and when nobody spoke to him. And uh, uh, I asked Dana, who is that? Oh, he's in charge of all their secret operations, and he's a good source of mine. Uh, so uh, he made a very bad presentation he, uh, of uh, why we shouldn't publish this. He said it would be embarrassing to him personally. It would, it would be bad for the, uh, for the agency's relationship with other intelligence agencies. They wouldn't believe us, uh, that we could keep secrets. Uh, and uh, the, the one thing that was said 
uh, that, uh, that I paid attention to, I, I, th I thought we had to take into consideration, uh, was that if we named the countries, uh, they would have to close, close down the, uh, uh, the, uh, the, the secret prisons and bring everybody back to Guantanamo. Uh, and the other was if we, if we named the countries, uh, their governments could fall. Uh, because most of the governments were not aware, were, were not aware of what was going on there. Uh, and, and, and I'm sorry, and the other kind of cooperation was going on about uh, uh, money and so on, might add. Uh, so uh, uh, I, I said, okay, well, we'll take all this into consideration. Uh, and uh, we went back, and then, then Don gets called by the White House, and they want him to come over. And he said, okay, I'll come, but I'm bringing Lon Dowdy with me because he's going to make the decision. I'm not going to make the decision. And so we go over there, and so you, 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 know what the, you know what it looks like there. There's the two big chairs. There's the president in one chair, and there's the head of the delegation in the other chair. And then there's the two couches with people sitting in it. So there's the president. There's Don Graham. I'm sitting here at the end of this couch. The vice president's sitting across from me over here looking daggers at me the entire meeting. <laughs> Uh, and, uh, and then the, the National Security Advisor is kind of wandering around. For some reason, they like to sit down. And the, the Bo Jones, the publisher, sitting next to me. Uh, and so the president makes virtually the exact same presentation that the CIA director made, almost word for word. Uh, and then I ask questions. And he doesn't ask to answer the questions. The, the National Security Advisor answers the questions, wandering around the room. And when the vice president I, uh, uh, said only one thing to me, he said, if you publish this, people are going to die looking at me. Uh, and so I, I heard that. Uh, and uh, so I, on the way out, uh, and I, so I asked lots of questions again about moving people back to Guantanamo, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and on the way out, the new director, the new director of the uh, National Intelligence, Director of National Intelligence, who I knew from his being an ambassador uh, in uh, some of the American uh, countries, uh, some South American, Central American countries, literally puts his arm around me, literally as we're going through the door to leave the Lowell office and said, I know you're going to publish this, but you're not going to name those countries, are you? I said, I'll think about it. And I did, so uh, Dana did her story. She named the countries, of course. And I thought carefully about it, and I decided the worst thing that's going to happen if we don't, if we don't name the countries by doing this story is everybody has to be brought back to Guantanamo and they have to shut down secret prisons, and that's not bad. But naming the countries would be a national security issue uh, because of the other kinds of cooperation that would end. Uh, so that's what I decided to do. So I, 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 Dana, I called Dan up and I said, we just have to take the names of the countries out of the story. She's really unhappy about that because she's such a great reporter. And it was really good that she got all these names. She actually visited outside one of the prisons in one of the countries and the CIA called her and told her to go home. Uh, so uh, uh, she went back to her, her desk, desk editor and the editor on the story said, why don't we ask Glenn if it's okay to say Eastern European democracies? And I said, okay, and that's what we did. So the results of that were uh, the secret prisons were closed. Uh, they were all taken back to Guantanamo, where a few of them still are still there today. Uh, and uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the other kind of cooperation went on with those countries. Uh, and eventually, the European Union did an investigation and named the four countries, but I still don't name them today. I left that up to them. And that's it. Cool. Thank you so much, Lynn. I think we've got time for one or two questions Sorry if they're about, really quick. Sorry about running long. Oh, no worries. It's great. Somebody asked a question. I can't remember it. I think it, had, I think it had to do with bishops or something, but I can't remember it. Yes. Um, 
Is there any topic that is currently being covered in the news that you would give less coverage to? So there's some criticism that, that certain sub subjects are given legs just by the very fact that there's so much attention paid to them. Is there anything, and you may even disagree with that, that's how, yeah, Could that's, you just repeat that, Lynn, for those in the Yeah, I'm sorry. She asked, are there, are there any subjects being currently covered by the media that I think are being covered too much? Um, and that's hard for me to say. Um, I, I always think, maybe being an editor at heart still, I always think of uh, subjects that aren't being covered enough. I, I'm pleased to see, for instance, that climate change is being covered more uh, than it was before. I'm pleased to see that democracy and the future of democracy in this country is now a beat for the New York Times, the Washington Post, and increasingly being covered by, by other people. I, I, I Usually I don't think anything's being covered too, too much. <laughs> How about the polls, Lynn? Uh, would you put the polls in that category? Who's up? Oh, that's a good point. That's a, there, there we go. There's the answer to your question. There's too much coverage of opinion polls, of political opinion polls, too much. Uh, because first of all, they're not, they're not reliable. How many of you have ever been called by anybody conducting a poll? Uh, and if you're called, would you be called in your landline? Would you be called in your cell phone? Or are you being polled online? It's just, it's just not reliable anymore. And just look at what happened. Uh, the polls showed a, a big victory for, uh, uh, for Hillary Clinton, and she lost. Uh, um, the polls showed a, uh, did not show how close the last election was. Uh, it's, there's way too much coverage of polls. OK, here's one final question right there. Uh, you were speaking with Hillary Clinton and uh, said, you know, we were trying to do what's right. And yes. you spoke with President Clinton. Yes. Said, if you think we're being too aggressive, let us know. We'll yes. look at that. And I'm wondering, what were those parameters and have they changed in the past five to ten years? Well, the world's changed in the last five to ten years dramatically. Uh, and uh, I, I think the, the aggressive coverage of all administrations, including this one, is exactly what it should be. Uh, if you want to look them up, I've written three reports for the Committee to Protect Journalists. You can find them online by Googling me or, or, or CPJ. Uh, one on the, 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 the news media uh, and the Obama administration, one on the news media and the Trump administration, and one on the news media in the first year of the Biden administration. And you'll see all my thoughts about exactly what you asked. Everyone, please join me in thanking you very much.